Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. And welcome to the About Books podcast and program. In this episode, we'll introduce you to Charles Kessler. He's the longtime editor of the Claremont Review of Books out of California. But first, let's look at this week's publishing news. Well, former Trump administration senior advisor Kellyanne Conway is writing a book about her time in the White House. It's going to be called Here's the Deal. It will be available in May and, according to the book's publisher, will provide, quote, a behind-the-scenes look at the workings of the historic 2016 Trump-Pence campaign and the Trump administration. Well, another former White House official is also working on a memoir, former Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks will be releasing an account of her time advising President Trump during the pandemic. Her book is called Silent Invasion. It's coming in April, and according to a statement by Dr. Burks, will, quote, expose the true cost of mistakes that were made at all levels of the federal government, but I also clarify the things that went right yet remained largely unseen, the insights and innovations that saved American lives in this pandemic and are essential to preparing for the next. Now also in the news, Axios is reporting on a new children's book publisher, which is focused on politically conservative figures throughout history. The publisher is called Heroes of Liberty. It's released biographies on President Reagan, economist Thomas Sowell, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Upcoming titles include profiles of British Prime Ministers Margaret Thatcher and Winston Churchill. Now in more news, the National Book and Alfred P. Sloan Foundations have announced the winners of their inaugural science and literature awards that they say, quote, deepen readers' understanding of science and technology in fiction and nonfiction. The winners, Daisy Hernandez, The Kissing Bug, Linda Hogan, The Radiant Lives of Animals, and Rachel Pastens, In the Field. And finally, former National Lampoon editor and best-selling author, T.J. O'Rourke, has died at the age of 74. He was the author of 19 books, including Eat the Rich, Peace Kills, 
and his final book was 2020's A Cry from the Far Middle. He appeared on Book TV over 20 times. You can watch all of his appearances anytime on our website, booktv.org. And now joining us on About Books is Charles Kessler, who is a longtime editor of the Claremont Review of Books. Mr. Kessler, for those unfamiliar with the Claremont, what is it and what's your mission? Well, um, thank you, Peter. It's, it's good to be here. Um, the, uh, the Claremont Review of Books is the nation's leading and in some ways it's only conservative uh, intellectual review of books. It's a quarterly uh, it's published out here on the West Coast uh, in Claremont, California, uh, from uh, the Claremont Institute. Uh, and it's been, uh, we're now in our 22nd volume, so we've been going 22 years, and I've been the editor uh, since we began in long ago in 2000. So what, what's the mission? What's the mission? Well, the mission of the, uh, of the uh, magazine and of the Institute, really, uh, is, is to bring the good news of the American founding to Americans and to American politics. Um, we tend to think that um, um, Americans uh, revere their founders, they're interested in them, they buy a lot of books about them, um, and uh, that's all good. And what we're trying to do is to uh, drive home that message and to connect it to the issues of the day and the larger issues of American politics, the direction of American politics over the past couple of centuries, but most especially uh, in the last uh, you know, century and a half or so, as the polarity between modern liberalism and conservatism has emerged. There wasn't qu- quite such a polarity in the 19th century, but the 20th century and uh, I would say a fortiori the 21st century has seen quite a, a polarization in our politics which, uh, in a way, uh, a, a return to the ideas of the founding would um, uh, alleviate. Um, that's, of course, much easier said than done. Now, Mr. Kessler, we also have this rather binary view of books as either liberal or conservative. Is that fair? Um, well, no, it isn't fair. I mean, that is to say it isn't exhaustive. Uh, there are certainly liberal books and conservative books. There are a lot more liberal books than there are conservative ones. There are a lot more liberal book reviews than there are conservative uh, ones. Uh, We have tried to to feature uh, very intelligent liberal commentators uh, and, and of course, uh, uh, very intelligent conservative commentators, too. We have, for example, in this issue, a a book review by Gordon Wood, probably the uh, premier historian of the American founding period, who is reviewing Andrew Roberts' new book on uh, his new biography of George III with the winning title of The Last King of America. Uh, And uh, here we have a liberal in a conservative uh, magazine. Uh, Most of our people, most of our writers are conservatives of one kind or another, uh, but they all have one thing in common, which is a kind of interest uh, in the best of the American idea. So how did Andrew Roberts' book come to be featured? Was that an easy one for you to, to pick, or what was the curation process like? Well, it was an easy one because uh, uh, I was a great fan of his biography of Churchill. Uh, and in fact, uh, through that, I, I contrived, I suppose you could say, to meet him, and we've become great friends. Uh, but I know his uh, biography of Napoleon as well, which is a, another uh, 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 barn burner. Uh, and this was uh, something different, though. 
which was part of its interest. This was a very historical book from the 18th century. Uh, and it was a book about a, 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 a man who in American popular lore, at least ever since the Declaration of Independence was regarded as a tyrant, uh, not a king that is not a legitimate king, but ultimately a kind of tyrant. And uh, Andrew disagrees with that very sternly. Andrew is a Tory. He's a British Tory. Uh, he would have been a Tory in the American Revolution, too, I think. Uh, and so but that doesn't really matter. I mean, we're, he's a, a very uh, uh, engaging uh, uh, historian and raconteur. And he does. A, and his book is splendid. Now, Mr. Kessler, you mentioned that you try to connect the founding with current public affairs. Does it matter who's in the White House? And I am referring to the Trump administration. Did that affect what you reviewed? The Trump administration was um, important for us, for, for the book review, because we took, um, beginning in 2016, um, a, a more favorable view towards Trump uh, in the primaries than almost any other major conservative organ did. It's not that we were enamored of Trump uh, or Trump's personality, exactly. It's that we thought he had a political opportunity uh, and that he was speaking to a new, a, a new or emerging kind of American political coalition. A new, uh, it, it is a conservative coalition, but it is uh, much more blue-collar, much more middle American um, than uh, the country club Republicans that we remember from um, the 60s and 70s uh, in our recent past. Uh, and uh, e even though he was in some ways very disappointing, <laughs> needless to say, as a as a president, um, he he uh, exploited opportunities that he didn't exactly create, and that he, that uh, which opportunities will continue to um, affect our politics. Uh, and it seems to me that if you um, if you simply uh, dismissed him and and the movement that he was leading, you were missing really where the action was in our politics, uh, and where it was likely to be in the future. Just because it exists, of course, doesn't mean that a political movement is worthy of support. Uh, and and uh, I don't mean to foreclose those questions. We had a very lively debate, pro and con, Mr. Trump, uh, in 2016. And we've had many uh, uh, second thoughts and, uh, and criticisms of him uh, since then, of course. But I still think you have to... Um, um, be alert to what's going on in our politics. In California, for example, we had, uh, you know, we had an enormous year for Joe Biden in 2020. San Francisco gave him 85% of their vote. Uh, the state of California gave him almost 70% of its vote. And yet a, a number of very liberal propositions on the ballot um, were turned down by the very same electorate, the very same voters who were loyally turning out to vote Democratic on the uh, uh, presidential and uh, other races. Um, that showed you, I think you might say, the limits of uh, ideological liberalism, even in a state like California, where it has made great, great uh, inroads. Uh, one of these propositions that was turned down, uh, which is the feature of, um, of uh, our cover story in this, uh, this uh, in the winter issue, the last issue of the magazine, was a uh, uh, an attempt to repeal um, 
the uh, ban on affirmative action, which was passed in uh, Proposition 209 uh, more than 20 years ago. Uh, well, the, uh, the attempt to repeal it failed. It failed by a larger margin than the original Prop 209 succeeded. So the coalition against affirmative action or the return of overt af uh, affirmative action and racial quotas, um, uh, racial discrimination to public hiring and university admissions and so forth was larger in 2020 than it was uh, more than 20 years before in California despite this, the fact that the state is much more liberal. So as I say, s there are a lot of interesting things going on in American politics, uh, and it's our job to call attention to them. So I'm going to put you on the spot here just a little bit. Uh, was there a book about the Trump administration that you would recommend? Um, not yet. <laughs> uh, I, I have a book which came out last February, which has uh, two chapters on the Trump, on Trump, the phenomenon of Trump, really. Um, uh, this is a book called Crisis of the Two Constitutions, uh, which Encounter published, as I said, last February. And what I tried to do was simply to understand Trump. Uh, I mean, it's, it's easy to dismiss him. It's easy to scorn him. Um, and uh, it's somewhat understandable, those reactions. But um, it's it's not enough. Uh, you have to take him seriously. And if you take him seriously in the line of many other scorned Republican candidates like Richard Nixon and uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, you'll see some interesting continuities. And I, I would say some uh, almost as interesting uh, departures. But uh, in my book, I look at uh, at sort of the connection between Reagan and Trump, which has not received the amount of attention uh, that it should. For I, I don't think many people know that it was Ronald Reagan in 1980 and again in 1984 who ran on the slogan, Make America Great Again. Um, it was a Reagan slogan, and it was, uh, it was something borrowed from Reagan that uh, Mr. Trump appropriated for his own campaign. So th that said, is it, it, is it too early even to assess the Reagan administration at this point? <laughs> Well, as uh, uh, Kissinger said to Joe and Lai, right, <laughs> or Joe and Lai said to Kissinger, it's too early to tell whether the French Revolution was a force for good or bad in the world. Um, uh, it, it, I think it's, uh, it, it's not too early to evaluate the Reagan administration, but it, it takes a, um, um, a serious effort. Uh, you know, Reagan was dismissed um, in, in his own way as a lightweight, uh, as an actor, uh, not as the usually groomed professional politician. Uh, and e even though Trump was much more, much wilder than Reagan was in terms of his personality and his aberrations from the political norm, um, it, it, there still is a kind of Republican um, attraction. I mean, a, both a capital R and perhaps a small R retraction um, to, uh, to the non-court Canada to the to the country versus the court style of politics, uh, and and Reagan really showed how that could succeed, and he did so against enormous odds. I mean, he he changed the country economically, he changed the country at least in many ways politically, and yet he never had 
uh, a Republican House of Representatives. He, he, had, he had only a Republican Senate and that for only six of his eight years. And he was able uh, to get a lot done uh, and to, uh, to engineer a kind of uh, transfer of the brain of the conservative movement uh, into his administration that I don't think any uh, president of either party has, uh, has equaled that feat since then. And we're talking with Charles Kessler, who is the longtime editor of the Claremont Review of Books. He's also a government professor at Claremont McKenna College in California. One of the current debates and issues that we're talking about in this country is the so-called cancel culture. And I want to show this article, this recent article in the Washington Examiner, No Books Left to Burn, How the Censorious Left Strangles Publishing Houses. And it talks specifically about two books, Art Spiegelman's Mouse and mm -hmm. Josh Hawley's book, which was canceled by Simon & Schuster after the January 6th uh, riots. What's your take on cancel culture, and, and uh, especially when it comes to publishing? Well, I, I think it's a, a very unfortunate uh, development. It is a, it, it is a, at its worst, it's it's a form of um, totalitarian thinking, um, in which uh, there's an orthodoxy, uh, which uh, which is uh, not publicly uh, drawn up exactly or defended, but which is uh, imposed on the public by powerful, um, most of the time private. Uh, authorities, and that's um, uh, it, it's troubling for uh, reasons that John Stuart Mill and, and other thinkers in the liberal tradition would immediately uh, react to. Uh, but it's also troubling, I think, uh, um, from the point of view of of, of America itself. Uh, you know, um, America is a very feisty and, in some ways, libertarian country, um, and uh, and. It doesn't um, has always had, of course, uh, puritanical uh, intellectual and moral strands in it. But has all but the resistance to those strands and the and the arguing arguing with them has been as American as the moral or moralistic strands themselves. Uh, it would be a shame to see that liberty um, and that uh, and the achievements, the intellectual achievements uh, of America, simply cast aside for the sake of the current um, political orthodoxy. It's especially galling that the spiritual origins of this orthodoxy are in, of all places, the modern university. Um, I, I mean, the, what in the McCarthy days was defended as, the, uh, as, a, as a truly liberal, free-thinking redoubt, the only place in the country where you could find real freedom. That was a long time ago, of course, but liberals used to talk like that. Uh, they don't so much. Anymore. Instead, they t they talk like people in universities do. Uh, politicians are expected to uh, to uh, observe pious orthodoxies of one kind or another uh, in re in regard of victimized or potentially victimized groups. Not unlike those that a a a, a, a tenure track assistant professor would would uh, be required to observe in a uh, in a liberal department, which is about every department. Uh, in any American uh, college, and it is—it's uh, 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 when you think of Christopher Hitchens and other great uh, uh, combatants of uh, of um, artificial orthodoxies, 
it's it's a it's it's awful really to think that the modern university has become the source of a certain kind of spirit of persecution rather than the uh, rather than salving um persecution and uh, and that kind of um uh limitation well well as a conservative as a college professor as an author have you felt the pressure of the cancel culture um I have been very blessed to teach at, at Claremont McKenna, which has been a um, not a conservative college at all, really, but a balanced school from the very beginning. We're we're now celebrating our 75th year, so relatively speaking, we're quite a young college. Um, but CMC has had uh, very prominent conservative profs and very prominent some prominent liberal ones as well. Uh, I'm I'm um, um, uh, chagrined to say that we're not as balanced as we used to be. Like everywhere else, um, our uh, faculty is moving left fairly briskly and, the, uh, and even the student body is, uh, um, has, uh, has less free thinking in it than um, it, it did 20 years ago, let's say. But still, I have not personally um, uh, been persecuted. Uh, although I know plenty of people in the academy uh, who have, and the magazine has um, um, highlighted their cases and crusaded for them. I'll mention Ilya Shapiro at Georgetown University, um, a, a new member of their faculty who is who almost immediately upon arriving at the law school at Georgetown was uh, under a kind of um, um, free speech watch, uh, and I guess remains under it uh, to this very day. What are you currently reading, Mr. Kessler? Well, uh, currently I'm reading um, um, uh, Evelyn Waugh, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, um, Vile Bodies and, and that series from the 1930s of, of uh, his, uh, uh, they're too harsh to call comedies exactly, but uh, the, the domestic novels that he wrote in the 1930s which I uh, had read a few of them many years ago and then had sort of uh, uh, forgotten about them. And I, I decided to come back to them uh, because there are some um, uh, similarities, I think, between the 30s and, uh, and the present day. And he's, of course, a, a wonderfully acerbic and acid uh, writer. Uh, and uh, in, in, a, in an age of um, excessive words, you know, a lot of copy. Um, it, it's it's good to see <clears throat> the astringency um, of his prose and his sensibility. So it doesn't feel dated. Um, no, actually, I mean, there's uh, the bright young things were a long time ago, but there's still. I mean, if if you're, <laughs> you know, he he never imagined anything quite like the Kardashians. I don't think um, he's uh, he's still very current in in many ways. Charles Kessler, what if you picked up? A historian's book, a nonfiction book about America's founding that was written in the 20s or the 30s, would that feel dated today? Um, yeah, well, uh, not not if it's a good book. I mean, um, uh, it, it, it has lasted for a reason. Uh, I think of uh, Carl Becker's book about the Declaration of Independence, which I think came out in 1922, something like that. Um, it's dated in the sense that its thesis is of, of its day, of its time. Um, but then its thesis was that the Declaration of Independence was dated. 
that all thought is a child of its time and the declaration was a child of its time and his book um, although more advanced uh, is a, a child of its time uh, i think that thesis is um uh, is false uh, and has many um uh you know ordinary you know, sort of commonsensical limitations if you thought about it uh but still it's if you if you wanted to name one book about the declaration of independence that sort of covers most of the waterfront, uh, it would be Carl Becker's book. What is a book you recommend to your government classes? Well, um, I, I, I won't. I won't say my own. <laughs> I impose that one on my government classes. No, no, I don't always. Uh, <clears throat> but I would say uh, I, I, I like very much um, Charles Murray's. Uh, book and not his last book, but still a very good book called Coming Apart, uh, which is a book about the, um, um, you might say, the uh, alienation of Americans from each other. We were talking a little bit about um, uh, the uh, the bitterness in our politics today and the sense of um, of one nation seceding from the other, from another nation uh, in within America, and his book. Uh, which is uh, a sort of um, um, uh, sociological fiction uh, about the the two countries that America is becoming. Um, One is the sort of the upper class white world in which um, uh, all sorts of of, uh, radical ideas are floating, but people actually live what we might have called once very middle class lives in which bourgeois morality to use that shop-worn phrase uh is still very much alive and then uh, a world of uh, an increasingly large um working class and lower middle class uh, uh and and struggling lower class um where uh, you're having not only economic uh, uh misfortune and uh and affliction but moral um uh, uh, um, collapse. Uh, he, he. I mean, you know, really, there's a kind of um, amazing moral decay happening at, at certain levels of America, in which people don't get married anymore or stay married. They they have children out of wedlock, uh, and this is not a racial thing. And one of the neat uh, conceit of the book is that it treats only white America, so as to avoid all of the you know, the, the stereotypical uh, issues between the races, this kind of moral um, decay has gone very far among the white working class, um, uh, leaving aside any other color or ethnicity. And so it's, uh, it is for um, the kind of students that you see in a, in a uh, superior college uh, like Claremont McKenna, it's uh, it's a little uh, uh, I the book is eye opening because it brings home to them the bubble to use one of Charles Murray's favorite terms in this book, the bubble in which they have grown up and competed for all of their life to get to this point and will continue to uh, compete in uh, as they um, uh, emerge uh, uh, as adults and and pursue their professions. But it is still a very small uh, co- you know, coherent and morally functioning um, part of the country compared to vast uh, expanses of the country outside of such colleges and such 
college towns. And we've been talking with Charles Kessler, who teaches at Claremont McKenna College, and he is the longtime editor of the Claremont Review of Books. Mr. Kessler, we appreciate your time on About Books. Thank you very much, Peter. Always a pleasure. And this is About Books, Book TV's look at the latest publishing news and nonfiction books. Now, here are some books being published this week. Craig Shirley looks at the events of April 1945, which included the final days of World War II and the deaths of President Franklin Roosevelt and Adolf Hitler. In Off the Edge, Daily Beast journalist Kelly Wheel reports on the rise of the Flat Earth Movement and other conspiracy theories disseminated through online platforms. And author Moises Naim, who is with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, offers his thoughts about why authoritarians have risen in power throughout the world. His book is called The Revenge of Power. Also being published this week, Jimmy Sony reports in The Founders on the creation of the online financial transaction company PayPal and its initial investors, including Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. And biographer Walter Starr recounts the life of Salmon P. Chase, Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury, and later the sixth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And finally, here's a look at some of the best-selling books according to IndieBound. Topping the list is University of Houston professor Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. It's about making meaningful human connections. After that is Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and creator of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones' look at American history and slavery's legacy in present-day America. That book has been on bestseller lists for weeks. Then it's Art Spiegelman's Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel on the Holocaust, Mouse, which was recently banned from the eighth-grade curriculum of a Tennessee school district. And that's followed by Crying in H Mart, another longtime resident of the bestseller list. It's a memoir by Michelle Zoner. And wrapping up our look at IndieBound's best-selling nonfiction books, is television writer and producer Michael Shore's thoughts on living an ethical life, his book, How to Be Perfect. And that's a look at this week's publishing news and the latest nonfiction books. Thanks for joining us on About Books. A reminder that About Books is available as a podcast on C-SPAN's app, C-SPAN Now, or wherever you get your podcasts.